Hey everyone, this is Flip It Finance. I'm Sam Itzmore and I'm joined by my co-host Fabian. Yo, good morning. Today is February 28th, 2023. And this week, step into my office where we're going to talk about how your bank is screwing you, super core inflation, and a quick history lesson. But real quick, a Ballard for our disclosure. As always, none of this is investment advice and does not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities, nor do any of my opinions reflect those of my employer, Vallejo Financial Advisors, or any of its affiliates. This is for educational purposes only. We are lazy, so we have no duty to revise any of this information. With that out of the way, how are you, Fabian? Fabian is doing pretty good. I had a... (laughs) (laughs) You can tell I'm doing good. Um... I had a really great workout today and it, it just felt like a lot of the work that I've been putting in finally is paying off. Now okay. that could be a false sense of hope. It could have just been a, one of those workouts that was like right up my alley yeah. and it's kind of in my wheelhouse. But I'm, no, it was, it was biking, kettlebell swings and nobody gives a, nobody cares. Um, so I'll, I'll stop talking there, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that <clears throat> I am just getting more fit. Yeah, one day. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? What's going on with you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. But what I did before this episode, which I'm sure you look at every time you get paid, is how much your deposit rate is at your bank, right? 100. Yes, of course. <laughs> Do you know what your deposit rate is off the top of your head? I, I don't. I think it has a zero and a two in it. But here's <laughs> what I will tell you it's low enough that I didn't have to file any tax forms. Oh, it's not good. I forget what the limit is to file taxes, but it's pretty low. It's a pretty low limit. <laughs> so I don't know if that says about like what, what that says about my, my rate or the amount of money that I'm bringing in. Both. So, Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is what we're going to talk about today is I think we're both in the same situation with, with our bank situation. But we're going to talk about deposit rates and how your bank is slightly screwing you in a way. So if you could play the world's smallest violin real quick. I'm going to defend banks real quick. So I used to work at a bank. It's fine. Look, you know, they good benefits. Uh, They pay you money uh, twice a week. Um, They're not, you know, they've been around for a while. So that's a good thing. But for the economy, banks are, are... they're, they're, the act, that's actually how money is created in the economy. Not like this money printing, but money is facilitated throughout the economy through banks. That's their primary business model. They take in deposits and make loans backed by those deposits out in the world. So they've got to make money themselves. So, you know, that's kind of you can stop the, the small violin music because that's that's where everyone kind of stops. Because they because of that function of taking in deposits and making loans out. That the bigger that spread is between those two is how they make money. There's a lot of nuance in there, but it's effectively how it works. So what ends up happening is there is a floor for deposit rates. And that's essentially 0%. Unless you're in Europe where they went negative for some crazy reasons that we don't have time to get into. 
but the floor for the loans that they charge is based off the federal funds rate. We've talked about the Fed raising rates a lot uh, over here. They'll raise rates again here in a, in a couple of weeks. And so as they raise rates, the, the loans that they have to charge, the interest on those loans they have to charge increases. But what they end up doing is not really increasing your deposit rate at all. So the spread between the loan and your deposit rate just increases uh, dramatically. So we were just, you actually kind of nailed it a little bit. You said that your deposit rate has a zero and a 0.2. And can you guess what the average savings rate on a deposit account is right now? I I can, but I'd be cheating because I have the newsletter right in front okay. of me. Okay. <laughs> you want to say <laughs> Uh, 0.23%. Exactly. So that's the average. There's a lot of nuance in that number as well too, but 0.23, that's probably what most people are getting around in their checking. And then if you have a high yield savings account, maybe you're getting two, three, some even pay 4%. We'll talk about those uh, a little bit later, but that's how banks effectively try to make more money is by not raising their deposit rates that they're they're giving out to customers in that way, and they, they kind of keep that that spread uh, in there. But the banks are counting on you being lazy. So both of us are slightly ra- lazy, it seems like, with our lower uh, yielding checking accounts. Because if you're able to, like Chase has some offers, other banks have some offers. We partner with some banks that have offers with automatically adjusting deposit rates for those. So if you want to take a little bit of, of time and effort to take your reserve savings and move it over to a higher yielding bank, it's pretty easy to do online, but it requires effort, it requires like two, two hours sometimes. And then you've got like this other banking account. But that is, quote, what your current bank is banking on is you not moving your money. So if you can find a money market and they're out there, that's paying roughly 4.25%. Um, I'm aware of those. I'm not going to tell you where, where they are. You can do your own research. But $10,000, and if you're just getting the average right now, 0.23% versus 4.25, that's only on $10,000 of savings, that's $400 a year. So then maybe, so, Fabian, you could file your taxes for that. Yeah. When you say a money market, can you just explain what you, what you mean by that? You kind of just threw that in there as a sentence. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So- there's, there's a checking account. That's kind of where your money comes in. Then you've got a savings account. And there's usually some stipulations around you can only transfer in so much in and out of a savings account. A money market is effectively just like a, a savings account um, that's souped up in a way. So there's different savings, different money market accounts. And money markets, what they do is they, they pull their money. You're, they pull your money in and like behind the scenes, they're investing in really short-term commercial paper and U.S. treasuries and everything for you. So that's how a money market is able to get a little bit higher yield than just a traditional savings account. Is there risk associated with that? When I hear the word money market, it sounds like my money is going into the market and there's risk involved in the money that I'm putting into the savings account. Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, yes and no. So in 2008, we had what was called breaking of the buck. And that was where money markets had invested in commercial paper of Lehman Brothers and Lehman Brothers went kaput. So when Lehman Brothers went to zero, some of that commercial paper that the the money market funds were holding uh, lost money on it. And so the whole thing was like, you put a dollar in for a money market, it's always going to be a dollar. And they had effectively had to break the buck. So their their money market went from being um, $1 to like 
0.98. Now, that's not like a, you know, that, that happens every day in the stock market, but that's never supposed to happen in a money market. So like it has happened before where there are some risks associated with this, but at the same time, a lot of the, there's been a lot of cleanup since 2008, but I never want to say like, there's no risk in doing anything. Um, there's, there's always risk. You have FDIC insured when you put your money into a bank type of thing, but generally most institutions, uh, th- those type of risks have been solved for. And then, so one other thing is uh, we actually have some fans uh, out in the real world, Fabian. I don't know if you know this, but uh, I s- met a random stranger who listens to our podcast. It felt good. They asked for a history lesson on ETFs. So an ETF is an exchange traded fund. So those didn't always exist. And they're kind of curious, how did we end up with exchange traded funds? So in the way, way back time machine, if you go back to the, the 1920s, there were professional stock pickers. They were called brokers. And they they would pick stocks on behalf of their clients and they would charge a fee for that. So as that kind of grew, those professional managers ended up pulling assets together and creating mutual funds. So one big fund, you'd put your money into the fund and they would manage that fund for you instead of managing, call it 200 individual accounts for, for investors. So it was better for the manager it was arguably a little bit better for the investor as well. So it's kind of actively managed uh, investing. And then Vanguard came around roughly about the 1970s and started popularizing passive investing. So that was like, why pay this higher fee for this active manager to pick stocks? They end up sucking anyways and not being in the market. Why can't we just buy the market? So that's what Vanguard popularized as passive investing, just tracking an index it's usually like S&P 500 or you've got the NASDAQ, which tracks tech stocks. There's a lot of different indexes in there. There's an index for everything now. And that was still in the mutual fund wrapper as well. So mutual funds only trade once a day. You put your money in and it gets traded at the end of the day. But if you want to invest at the beginning of the day, you can't really do that with the mutual fund. And you know that annoys finance people. You can't do things right away. You want more convenience and things like that. So they ended up creating the exchange traded fund. So that allows the passive investments to track like a stock. So now you can go buy the S&P 500 ETF. You have the broad exposure to the S&P 500 market. And you're not really actively choosing those companies in there. You're kind of riding the wave in a way. But you can trade it like a stock. So if you got $1,000 transferred into your brokerage account today, you could go, go buy that ETF right now at 1130 type of thing instead of having to wait at uh, all day and they get the ending close price. So boom, that's how you got an exchange traded fund. Wonderful, wonderful breakdown, Sam. <laughs> and then one other thing is I talked about at the beginning is super core inflation, super hot. Super core. <laughs> oh my God, I hope you edit that out, but maybe you keep it in. <laughs> No, I want to keep it in. Isn't okay, that do you not does that not happen in your head whenever you hear that? I kinda of, it's more of like a flex, more of like super core. No. It's like somebody screaming into a microphone. You clearly just came from a workout. But whenever <laughs> whenever I'm referencing inflation, I'm talking about consumer price index. So that's CPI. And that's the most popular one. My theory on why it's most popular is because it comes out first in the month. And so you get that report the first 
out of most of them. And there's a lot of different models of inflation, and they're probably all wrong in their own unique way. And of course, the, the Federal Reserve and our boy, Jay Powell, who's running the Federal Reserve, they have their own favorite measure of inflation. And of course, it's not CPI. Why would it be that easy? They actually prefer to look at something called personal consumption expenditures, PCE. And that's just a different way to, to look at um, inflation. So PCE comes from businesses. CPI comes from consumers. For whatever reason, the Fed likes PCE a little bit better. It's a broader measure of inflation, and that makes them happier. So whatever gets them going. But PCE came in last Friday, and it came in hot. So at 4.7% versus expectations of 4.3. And now it peaked around like 5.4. So it's coming down the same way that um, CPI inflation is. It's it, not as not as drastically, but it's kind of doing this like little rollover action in there. But the issue that Jay Powell had was when he looked at what's called super poor inflation. Now, this is a subset of the PCE inflation. So you're like really drilling down into it now. And that is core services. It's inflation of core services minus housing. So you're focusing just on a really narrow subset of just the service component of inflation. And now from Jay Powell's own words, he's saying that this might be the most important category for understanding the future evolution of core inflation. And I don't think I explained core inflation. That is inflation without uh, energy and food costs in it because those move around a lot. If you strip those out, you can get a better underlying view of where inflation is trending. And when you look at super core inflation, or as, inflation, or as Fabian says, super core inflation, super core. it's not going well. Uh, so like all the other measures of inflation are rolling over in a way and coming back down, which is great. But super core is staying really stagnant and stubbornly right where it was at the peak, right around uh, 5%. So in their view, this is considered stickier because you're looking at just service uh, inflation and it's harder for that to come down. So services is kind of like um, what someone is paying you for your your podcasting producing skills you're not really going to cut your price too much or, or, or anything like that. So that's what's called stickier. And the only way that that really comes down is usually are expected with the recession. So you can cue the scary ominous music there is the Fed wants this to come down. But the only way it can come down is if you have a recession. That's why everything's kind of like this big flywheel effect that we go back to is higher inflation means higher rates, which means higher probability of recession, which means stocks go down. And that kind of continues this like flywheel of scary, ominous music recession. Oh, my God. Why is this the first time that we're hearing about super cores? Does, does Jay Powell talk about that type of inflation uh, like every time that he, he comes out to talk about it? Or is it the first Friday? Or I forget what it is, the last Friday, every yeah, Wednesday. Yeah, no problem. What, what day? <laughs> yeah, so not not normally. I think they're they're drilling down. So inflation never used to be a problem. The, the, the problem used to be that we didn't have inflation. <laughs> if you if you can believe that. So 2018-2019 inflation was was always below 3-2% and they actually wanted it to be higher than that because they wanted the economy to grow a little bit. You needed inflation to run a little bit hot for economic growth. And what's kind of happening is, you know, they're looking at CPI, they're looking at PCE, all these different measures. And 
what they're seeing is that some are trending in the right direction and the ones that are not, that's what, that's, what's really getting their, their attention. They're spending more time on. So it's kind of, it's kind of a function of they're looking at the, all the reports in the macro, and then they're drilling into what's not working. And right now, Supercore inflation is catching his attention and other people's attention because, well, if that's not coming down, then we might have an issue where inflation stays at 4% for 10 years. You could argue that's not a bad thing as long as inflation isn't increasing. But if inflation is not going the way the Fed wants, that means that they're going to continue raising rates, which is puts a little bit more stress on the economy. Hmm. Getting skeptical over here. Of what, J-Pal or inflation? Yes. Both. Well, you know, J-Pal is real, but inflation is kind of made up. Inflation is like kind of just, they, they don't really know what it is. They're just guessing. They have all these different reports. There's like core, there's CPI, there's like a broader version of CPI, there's PCE, there's core PCE, now there's super core inflation. They're just making stuff up. I don't like it. I'm not gonna lie to you. I don't. I don't. I don't like. It. <laughs> Every week, I'm just gonna come with you with a different inflation report and be yes. like, "And here's this other one that no one's ever talked about before, but it's hot." Yeah, it's so hot right now. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, we, I, we did meet, or I met the uh, the first stranger danger person who I didn't really know who is a. Uh, podcast uh, subscriber and their feedback was uh, I need to boil it down a little bit more and not talk uh, really boring finance. So I'll try to do that. I don't think I accomplished that in this episode, but it is a goal to to make this. Um, so almost anyone can, if Fabian can listen I, to this, then I mean, I like, thought it was on. riveting, right? And then we had, you know, I was yelling super cool. I talked about, man, this is a gem. This is a great episode. <laughs> I'll say it myself. I feel like this is a dysfunctional mess, but we'll still post it. <laughs> yes. Uh, but with that, like, if you if you have questions, feedback, I'm always open to it. Please come up to me. This was at a CFA event. Um, more than happy to talk about the podcast and, and take uh, notes, feedback. We just incorporated the history lesson in here. That was a question one of the friends asked uh, of me. So as always, please subscribe, share, and rate the podcast. And I didn't ask, oh, Fabian, do you have any burning questions for today? So no burning questions, but I do have some conceptual ideas for future episodes. Okay. And it's based on this history lesson thing. And I okay. think that, because you're, you're very knowledgeable and you've always got like little tidbits of things that have impacted markets in the past. So I think taking a look at some things like you you, you talked about this break the buck thing. that sure. that could be kind of important, but also, you know, taking big financial scenarios that have happened in the past that people may, may not be familiar with and kind of just putting them in, you know, in your flipping finance format, uh, of breaking it down in a newsletter and, and making it easy to digest. And so people have that same kind of like reference knowledge that you do. Oh yeah. So like breaking, I mean, breaking the, I just did that off the top of my head. That's just, Something that like I've read Imagine about before. If you put something down on paper. Goodness. And then we put it on wax. So what you know? what history lessons would you like to learn about an audience if you've stayed with us for 19 minutes? What would you like to hear more about, Fabian? Uh I would like to hear about wait, was the Wolf of Wall Street a real a true story? Yes. Yeah, yeah, because I got yeah. So like something like that would be interesting. Cause I I'm sure a lot of people have seen it, but 
I'm sure it was also glamorized for the movie, yes. but like talking about something like that or, you know, and I'm just pulling from movies right now, but like, um, the big short talking about that, that happened because, because people know that it happened, but they may not like, I know world war two happened, but you know, ask me anything about it and I couldn't tell you, you know, cause I didn't pay attention, but if someone were to, to, you know, produce a 20 minute podcast and kind of give me the, you know, the clip notes version. I think that would be fun and interesting okay. to listen to. Yeah. Maybe something like exact target would be a good one. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Okay. Mm. Cool. Well, appreciate your time. And as always open to feedback, subscribe and uh, send it to a friend. Appreciate it. Bye.